Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, If you are here because you were dragged here with family for Father's Day, thank you for being here. Um, We hope your time with us is encouraging and challenging. And um, maybe after reading this text from Luke, challenging is the most notable um, reality that you're experiencing in this morning. But Jesus does tell his disciples here that if anyone would come after him, let them deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. It's a fairly blunt, perhaps even a bit discouraging on the surface, reminder of what following Jesus looks like. We're actually going to be exploring this text, at least in passing, over the next couple of weeks as we continue the conversation we started last week reflecting on the Trinity, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the promise of Pentecost, what we talked about last week, that Jesus will send a helper to his followers. That promise is a reminder at a very basic level that we need help. The promise of Pentecost destroys any illusion of self-sufficiency and confronts us again with our own Vulnerability, because why do Christ's followers need a helper? Precisely because they are vulnerable. And not just the sort of vulnerability where we decide if we are going to reveal our deepest emotions or our deepest self to another person. You know, not everybody is going to choose that type of vulnerability. Ideally, I think we are moving in that direction as we continue to um, mature and move into emotional health, but that's only one type of vulnerability. There is also a vulnerability that is not chosen, and that's a vulnerability that we all share in. The word vulnerable comes from a Latin word which simply means to wound. So in other words, we are woundable. This is a type of vulnerability that we don't choose. We are all plunged into it as we enter this world in fragility, dependent on the care and nurture of others. And and we live each subsequent day of our existence susceptible to many wounds. The helper Jesus promises to send to his followers is necessary because of that sort of vulnerability, because the nights are going to be long and some of them quite difficult. The disciples Jesus promises, you're going to face 
persecution. You are going to be hated. You will be expelled from the synagogue community. All of that reminds us even today that following Jesus doesn't buffer us from the harsh realities of our world. But how can that be? Especially in light of our conversation last week that God is with us even now through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if we believe that God is all-powerful and God is benevolent, all good and loving, how do we reconcile all of those realities? Uh, These are questions that are not new to us. If you are having these questions, welcome to the human race. You, You know, humans have wrestled with these questions for a long time. These questions predate Christianity. In fact, Epicurus, the Greek philosopher who lived several hundred years before Jesus, asked it in this way. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? In theological terms, the question that is summed up in this quote that we just read, this struggle is often referred to as theodicy, the the problem of suffering and evil in light of the goodness of our God. These are questions that if you've been around here for long at all, you know that we routinely consider them, and we do that intentionally because we hope over the years to have our, imagination, our imaginations shaped in a way that is thoroughly Christian so that we might make sense of suffering when we face it and respond well and so that we might respond well when others suffer. So how do we begin thinking about these complex issues in a Christ-shaped way? going to explore this over the next two weeks, but I want to warn you here from the beginning that I don't have a tidy answer. I don't have a solution to this. In fact, I don't think there is a solution to this problem, so to speak. There are so many things that defy our explanation, but hopefully our goal becomes not nailing down a solution to the problem, but thinking about these issues in a Christian way. This is something I think we have all experienced, confronted with all of these realities that defy explanation. In fact, I know that there are several in this room with us now experiencing the heaviness of these realities even today. Confronted with thoughts like, this this can't be right. This feels awful. I, I can't understand or explain what I'm going through. All I know is that it feels like pure chaos. What do I do with this? How do I respond? Did anybody see the documentary Grizzly Man? That's a weird segue, but stick with me. Anybody? Grizzly? Okay, a couple of people. It it was streaming on Netflix. I don't know if it still is. But it tells the wild story of a grizzly bear activist who spent 13 years living with grizzlies in the Alaskan wilderness. 
probably not the best idea. If you've seen the documentary, you know that it's, I don't want to spoil it. It's, it's not a great idea. I, I don't recommend it. But he had this belief that nature should be in harmony. And if we can just work to create the correct environment, that goal of harmony would be realized, which is what he set out to do with grizzly bears. Um, he believed, though, that he was successful, that he was a legitimate friend of the bear, though as you watch, it's quite apparent that there's little more than passive indifference from the bears. But at the end of the film, Werner Herzog, who is the director of the documentary, he responds to this man's belief in the harmony of nature with this blunt counterargument. He said, I believe the common denominator of the universe is not harmony, but chaos, hostility, and murder. It's a pretty bleak as Happy Father's Day. It's, <laughs> it's a, a pretty bleak assessment, but you can probably understand how he arrived at that position. Now, I think a Christian response to the problem of evil and suffering is much more nuanced, and I think it's much more hopeful than that. But to Herzog's point, it is fairly easy to have a romantic view of nature and our world, especially today with all of our high-tech gear that helps us harness, or at the very least withstand and survive some of nature's unadulterated power. But the more time you spend in the wild, which you, by looking at me, you know I haven't spent a lot of time in the wild, but the more exposure you have to the forces of nature, it begins to lose, not its beauty, doesn't lose its wonder, but it does begin to lose some of that romance. Because what happens when that harmony is destroyed in a moment of utter devastation? We could think of tsunamis that wipe out entire islands, or tornadoes that wipe out entire rural communities. The, the rose-colored glasses quickly crumble. What's once appeared to be harmonious is revealed at some level to be quite chaotic. Our scriptures actually give voice to this reality, which I find to be really encouraging, although maybe at the beginning it doesn't seem quite like a satisfying answer, but maybe you remember our call to worship a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 104 where we read about the Leviathan. You remember that? That may be an unfamiliar term. It was sort of this mythic sea creature in the ancient world. In fact, in, ancient, in the ancient Hebrew imagination, the Leviathan in a way represented everything in our world that lacked order, everything that was chaotic, everything that was terrifying and disorienting. And I actually find that there's something strangely comforting about the simple fact that our scriptures take seriously these sorts of inexplicable, terrifying, chaotic realities of our world. It's not ignoring those realities or pretending that they aren't challenging or concerning, but it gives voice to them. We'll return to this in more detail next week. And I get that there is a categorical distinction, perhaps, between moral evil on one hand and what we might call 
natural evil, on the other hand. Moral evil, or what some theologians have referred to as disorder, would include suffering we endure because of evil choices, because of human sin. Natural evil, on the other hand, what some theologians have referred to as non-order, in contradiction to disorder, non-order, which would include devastation and destruction that is not a result of evil choices or human free will, but just of natural processes in our world. So this category would include things maybe like wildfires or tsunamis, floods, or even death by natural causes or various diseases. Natural phenomena not necessarily or always caused by sinful choices, but that still lead to a lot of destruction. So those are different categories on some level, and they raise different questions to a certain degree. But if for a moment we can focus in on moral evil, on that disorder, one of the prevailing responses that we as Christians have offered at times to some of these questions is, Well, evil, or the existence of human suffering, is primarily, if not only, a heart issue. So if we can fix the human heart, if we can bring the human heart into alignment with Christ, evil, and thus human suffering, will be eradicated. This is something that we can accomplish if we work together to create that harmony. Now, though I think that is far too simplistic, it's actually not surprising that that response would be offered to some of these questions, nor is it entirely misguided. In fact, Jesus said something along these lines in Matthew chapter 15. In response to one of his confrontations with the Pharisees who are upset that Christ's disciples are not washing before they eat, which, by the way, I sympathize with the Pharisees and their complaint in this particular instance. But Jesus says, look, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth. And then he goes on to say this in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Suffice it to say, a lot of the pain, the suffering, we endure or cause as human beings is due to actions that proceed from a wicked heart. I get that this is not a real popular idea, but it's one of the things Jesus teaches us. A lot of pain we experience results from brokenness and wickedness in our hearts. There's a lot in our world that resists this idea that our hearts might be broken in any significant way or that evil and wicked might proceed from them. But I think most would eventually find an area or an instance where they would agree with this sentiment. 
There may be a lot of disagreement on which actions are objectively evil, but even those who don't follow Jesus, I think, can identify incidents and actions where the only conclusion that is reasonable is that is wicked. That is evil. Brokenness of some kind must have contributed or led that person to that place. I think Jesus says, yes, because of sin, we experience brokenness in profound and varied ways, which affects the most inward parts of our being and then comes out in destructive ways. Comes out in ways that hurt us as we engage in those activities and ways that hurt others who become victims of our sin. I'm sure we can all think of many ways this has been true in our lives. As the old cliche goes, and I know it sounds incredibly trite, but I think there's truth in it that hurting people hurt people. It is true, and yet, as we try to grapple with these complex issues, that is not the only source of pain and evil. In a recent article in the New York Times, Esau Macaulay, who's an Anglican priest and a professor at Wheaton College, he wrote this. The problem with such thinking, so reducing the problem of evil and suffering down to nothing more than a heart issue. He says, the problem with such thinking isn't that it is completely false, but that it is dangerously inadequate as an account of evil in Christian theology. Historically, Christianity has taught that evil arises from three interlocking realities, often called the flesh, the devil, and the world. When Christians in many traditions are baptized, he went on, they explicitly reject all three sources of evil. So there's the flesh, which probably is the easiest for us to wrap our minds around. We've already detailed that a bit today. But according to Christian tradition and to the teachings of Jesus, there are also undeniably spiritual realities at play. This becomes much more difficult for us to grapple with or understand. We, we talked about it briefly last week as we considered what Jesus had to say about the ruler of the world. So whether we would think of the devil or other spiritual forces, we recognize, based on the teachings of Jesus, that those spiritual forces are not omnipresent. They're, they're not godlike. They are not to be feared because, as Jesus says in that te text, they stand judged and condemned, and ultimately Jesus alone will be victorious over them. And yet today we acknowledge that our scriptures teach that there are spiritual realities at play that generate suffering. So the flesh, the spiritual realities, and finally Macaulay notes that Christian theology acknowledges the world as a source of pain and evil. Again, as we noted last week, we're not talking about planet Earth or about God's good creation, but the world, again, in John's conception of the world, the entire system that stands in opposition to Jesus, and as a result of standing in opposition to Jesus, generates a lot of suffering. So we might think of institutions, or structures in our world, or even governments that stand in opposition to Jesus and cause 
great suffering. Now, the point in highlighting this, um, the point in taking time to think through all of these is because we want to begin to acknowledge that the existence of suffering, the existence of evil in our world, and not just at a cerebral level, not just philosophically, but very practically in our lives, the problem of suffering, the effects of sin and evil are incredibly complex. And to develop a Christian understanding of those complexities and how we might navigate those complexities requires an imagination that is continually, over the course of our lives, shaped by Jesus and on some level willing to sit with and exist in some of those complexities and those tensions. We are actually going to have an opportunity today to practice that because there's not going to be a whole lot of resolution. Again, happy Father's Day. I want to return as we begin to wrap this up to our gospel text today, which we're going to look again at one of the last things we read there. Next week, we'll come back and consider the beginning of this text in more detail. But right at the end, we read this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's obviously a, a lot that could be said about this statement. One of the things I want to focus in on today, though, is that surprisingly, God does not eradicate vulnerability. That might be our expectation, but it's not our reality. God does not eradicate vulnerability. Instead, he chooses to enter into vulnerability himself in the humanity, the suffering and death of Jesus. And then in turn, Jesus invites us to enter vulnerability, to deny ourselves what he says here, to take up our crosses just as he did and follow him. And in the midst of those confrontations with our own vulnerability, Jesus promises that his spirit is with us and in us, that he hasn't left us alone, that the same God who enters suffering and pain himself walks with us through ours. Jesus teaches not only does he identify with us in our suffering, because he endured it at some point in the past, but through the presence of the Holy Spirit endures it with us now. If he is, in fact, dwelling in us, he endures, walks through the things we endure and walk through. Furthermore, as we suffer, as we are confronted with evil in our own unique ways, we also participate and enter into the fullness of Christ's life. This is a great mystery of the Christian faith, but it's one we acknowledge today. I don't think that means we seek out suffering or that we long for painful experience. Of course not. It doesn't mean we rejoice in evil because evil leads to suffering and that helps us enter the fullness of Christ's life. This is not some sort of a, a gotcha moment in the theodicy question. This doesn't solve the challenge, 
but I think it begins to help us make sense, or at least help us keep faith and keep trust in the midst. And we cling to the hope that in the age to come, that God will, God alone will rectify all of our brokenness. That God alone will bring justice to our evil and our sin. So Jesus says, those who follow me must deny themselves, take up their crosses. This is not an option. But I also don't know that it should be reduced to self-denial in avoiding sin. I think it certainly includes that. But I don't know that the self-denial Jesus speaks, here, uh, speaks of here is just the practice of moderation. Well, I need to limit my consumption. I, I need to fast. I need to spend time in solitude and silence. I, I need to abstain to different things to varying degrees in order to get myself under control. Perhaps it includes that, but I think it's actually much bigger than that. I think the situation that Jesus is painting here is much more dire. We actually are in control of very little in terms of what happens to us. The only thing that we really have any control over, as Viktor Frankl said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. We, we can't control what happens to us, but we can, to some degree, control how we respond to what happens to us. I think this is where we begin the conversation of thinking about suffering and evil in a way that is thoroughly Christian. Do we cling to Jesus? take up our cross and continue to follow, or do we throw our hands in the air and say, forget it all? We'll return to this idea next week, but for now we acknowledge there is a lot that we can't control. Yes, wise living prevents some hardship, but trouble will find us. Let those who follow me deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or as Soren Kierkegaard put it, to let go is to lose your foothold temporarily, not to let go is to lose your foothold forever. The promise of Jesus, uh, and I hope you find encouragement in this. The promise of Jesus is not that we will have a carefree existence or that we will today be delivered from all of the effects of sin and evil. The promise of Jesus is that we, as we follow him and as we let go of the illusion of control, we actually, the possibility exists that we can find true life and true freedom in Jesus Christ alone, not in our ability to control our situation. Friends, be encouraged. Jesus is walking with you. 
even now. Upholding you, strengthening you. God's spirit is with you and in you, strengthening you. Making it possible for you to cling to faith and to hope. I encourage you, cling to hope as you cling to Jesus. Would you stand? Beth, if you would join me as we prepare to share communion. We are invited today, as we are each week, to the table of our Lord to celebrate. Um, Today we come to this, uh, obviously, with the image of taking up our cross and following Jesus fresh in our minds. And as you find sustenance in this meal today, my hope, is that you will be encouraged with the thought that you do not have to control your situation in order to experience true freedom and true life. I invite you to feast at the table of our Lord today. Find strength, find hope. I want to say a prayer for us. We'll make two lines down these two center aisles. You can come to the front, and when you get to the front, you will hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation to the table. Lord Jesus, we cling to you today. look to you as the source of our hope, the source of our freedom that is true freedom, source of our life. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.